Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, as we continue our series in Exodus, title free at last. This morning, I've titled this sermon, Up From Slavery. Up From Slavery. Listen to the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months and shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male uh, male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. We're going to look at some of those other uh, verses uh, as we preach this word of God. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come to you in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. We ask that you would bless us now uh, as we sit under the authority of your word, each of us, Lord, would you do that work in us? Would you make us more like your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ? We pray, Lord God, for your blessing and your anointing. Open our ears that we can hear and our hearts that we can receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In his important work, uh, Up From Slavery, uh, Booker T. Washington, the founder of the Tuskegee Institute, tells the story of his journey uh, from slave to educator to founder of Tuskegee. It's an important story, and one in which Washington, through his own story, lays out his philosophy for how formerly enslaved people were to improve their own lives. You might say that the signs and seals, the visible representations and confirmations of that improvement were things like hard work and education and self-improvement, racial solidarity, and even at times, accommodation. 
If you've read uh, Booker T. Washington, if you've not read Booker T. Washington or W.E.B. Du Bois, you should. Both their stories and their visions were important in the journey of African Americans from slavery to freedom and thereafter. And while I have no quarrels with my ancestors regarding the values of hard work or education and self-improvement, I do realize that there is another story of up from slavery into which my own story and your story has been woven. And in that story, it's not our hard work, it's not our education, it's not our self-improvement uh, that, that, has, that has brought us out of the grips of slavery. No, in that story, the signs and seals of our deliverance were not our own work, but the work of one outside of us, the work of the only one who can rescue us from a power too great for us to overcome on our own. Indeed, many of my ancestors knew that story, for it was the story, the story, uh, the story in which they rooted their own hopes of temporal deliverance from slavery in this land. That story, brothers and sisters, is the story that is in front of us, the story that was to point to that great act of deliverance that was coming in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, that he was going to accomplish to set us free from the evils that made this temporal situation of Israel possible. You see, the, e the evil of the Egyptian empire at that time owed its existence to the sin and death that Adam and Eve brought into the world through their rebellion against God's laws. And the evil of slavery in this land, as well as the evil of slavery in other lands, as well as the evil we see in individual acts of oppression and corporate ones in our own day, owes its existence to this reality of sin that is now at work in the world and every human being that is born into it. This story, brothers and sisters, of God's deliverance of, uh, of Israel from Egypt pointed to a God who was and is a delivering God, a delivering God who would one day demonstrate chiefly through the work of Jesus his commitment to set people free from their ultimate enemy, sin, and its accompanying twin, death. God, in his steadfast love and faithfulness, in the process of this deliverance, he gave his people a celebratory feast. He gave them a ceremonial meal that would remind and confirm to his people's consciences that he not only had delivered them, but that the blessings of that deliverance would continue to be theirs in covenant with him. This is why on the night when Jesus was betrayed, the, the very same night in which Israel was to celebrate the Passover as they had done for centuries, he celebrated a meal with his disciples, a meal that was a fulfillment of all that this original festival meal pointed to, a meal that in point of fact would replace this meal, for in it Jesus was providing a sign and a seal of deliverance, not just from the particular sin of oppression, but from sin in all of its forms and in all of its power to enslave, to corrupt, to destroy people's lives. What we're looking at, brothers and sisters, this morning in this original story then, is the seed 
of a promise of deliverance that would be finally met in Jesus. And so right in front of us this morning are all the elements in seed form of what God was doing or going to do fully in Christ. And so as we look at this story this morning, I want us to unpack that seed and see in it what we now fully have in our Lord. And this story is all of our stories of being brought up from slavery. So I'm going to talk this morning about a sacrificial deliverance, a sacrificial deliverance. Listen again to verses 7 through 13. This is what the Lord says. Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then verses 21 to 27. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel, said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give to you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed down their heads and worshiped. Brothers and sisters, at the center of the Passover ceremony was the killing of a perfect lamb, a lamb without defect. The blood of this lamb was to be spread on the doorposts of the houses and dwellings in which the people of Israel lived. God himself indicated the purpose of this act in verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you, the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Egypt's sin of oppressing the Israelites continued to demonstrate a truth that God had proclaimed to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the truth that sinful rebellion against God brings with it the promise of death. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Romans centuries later, would say to them, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. He would go on to proclaim that the wages of sin is death. 
And we need only to look out at our world to see the physical reality of death that has come into this world through our sin. And we need only to trust the Word of God that for those who have not trusted in His Son, that they remain under the spiritual death that belongs to all those who continue to rebel against God's truth. Death is the wage that sin pays, and it pays that wage on time. But what God was doing in the Passover meal was to demonstrate His willingness to pay that wage on behalf of all of those who trust in Him. In the Garden of Eden, He took the life of an animal to cover the nakedness of His own image bearers, who now in their fallen state were beginning to feel the physical and spiritual impact of the death that they had brought into the world through their sin. And now here again, he is in this ceremonial meal, he is providing again the life of an animal as a symbol of his commitment to rescue his people from the death brought into the world through, in this case, the sin and rebellion of Egypt. Through this meal then, God was communicating that he and he alone is the God who delivers from death and that this death requires a sacrifice. For God to pass over his people, the life of another would be required, in this case, the life of a lamb. And notice in verse 13 in particular, God indicates that this will be a sign not for God, but for you. The life of the lamb symbolized through the blood on the doorpost would be a sign for them of God's commitment to rescue them from death, to pass over them through the death of another. Every time they celebrated this meal, every time they rehearsed the events of that night, they would remember that God through this act had passed over them, that death had been placed on another so that they might go free. And this, of course, will become a, a central message of the sacrificial system in which the life of animals would be used to symbolize and seal to their consciences that God was committed to their deliverance from death and in so doing would pass that death sentence on to another. Every time they ate, the lamb at the Passover meal, they would be reminded that God had provided the life of another and had passed over them. For those of us who are, who are believers, as, as we sit here in this room today, as we sit here freed from the power of sin and from the wages of that sin, which is death, we do so because of the life of another that was given in our place. Don't ever forget it. It was not the blood of animals that purchased our salvation, nor was it the blood of animals that purchased the salvation of believers in the Old Testament, but rather our salvation was purchased through the one whom the writer of Revelation says was slain from the foundation of the earth. The sentence of death brought into the world because of sin, the sin of the human community, was laid on Jesus. Those wages of death that sin pays were deposited to his account so that now we can sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. The people of Israel, they were never to forget that their freedom from death came at the cost of another. And as I said earlier, this would be built into the sacrificial system itself to convey this message to God's people regularly in the preparation for the ultimate giving of the life of our Lord 
and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus died so that we might be set free. Walking in that freedom, brothers and sisters, includes the regular reminder in the supper and in our day-to-day reflection on this gospel truth. We are free, truly free, because Jesus died. Don't let yourself forget it. Because he died, we are to separate ourselves from everything that has to do with death. We are not to kill. We are not to steal from. We are not to destroy others. We are not to deprive others of justice and anything good which is in our power to give. We are not to oppress, to mistreat, or defame others. All those things that bring death into the lives of others, which our sin, which our sin, which in our sin, we often give ourselves to, to secure our own comfort and pleasure and success. We are to refrain from those things because we have been delivered from death through the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen, people of God. It's a sacrificial deliverance. It's a communal deliverance. It's a communal deliverance. Verse 3 through 6. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verses 43 to 49, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statue of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall shall not take any of it, any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. And all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And if a stranger shall shall sojourn with you, and we keep the Passover to the Lord, that all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. While each participant in the Passover meal would need to trust in the Lord for the meal to have personal application benefit to their lives. The meal itself was a communal event. It was a meal to be shared together throughout the entire community, symbolizing the community's shared participation in the deliverance of God that he was about to accomplish. What God was about to do was for everyone who would believe, parent and child, young and old, male and female, single and married, native and foreigner. Thus, there's an emphasis on sharing one lamb in each household, with smaller households sharing a lamb together. And in the institution of the Passover as a statute to be observed perpetually, God places a great emphasis on there being one law for the native and the stranger, that those who possess covenant membership are to eat this meal together without discrimination, without segregation. They are to eat it 
in the same house together. This communal nature of the meal and its emphasis on, on being for everyone in the community is not incidental. The Lord is making a clear distinction regarding the nature of his kingdom blessings over against the nature of the blessings of the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world create diversity through conquest or through the promise of equal access and participation in the blessing of the nation or empire, which are never fully realized. But in the covenant community, the blessings of God's deliverance belong to all equally without discrimination. Make no mistake about it, that mixed multitude in verse 38 that goes up out of Egypt with Israel are not just going because they want a new start in a new place. They are going, many of them, because they realize that Israel's God is a different God and his kingdom is a different kingdom. One where, one where blessing isn't distributed on the basis of ethnicity, isn't distributed on the basis of social position or economic position or nationality or the like, but rather it is distributed on the basis of faith in him and faith in him alone. That is what the Passover meal signed and sealed to the members of the covenant community. What, what attracted that mixed multitude that, that went up out of Egypt with Israel was that God was a different God than the gods they had seen. This unity is what people should see in the church. The same unity that attracted that mixed multitude that went up with Israel out of Egypt should, should, should be found in the church. And when it isn't, we should not be surprised at people's reluctance to join our ranks. Indeed, there, there's an increasing polarization in the church, which some among us are attributing to everything else but our failure to demonstrate God's love across the lines that we, uh, that so often divide us, race and ethnicity and gender, socioeconomics and the like. We don't want to deal with the fact that this aspect of the Lord's Supper, our shared participation in the benefits and blessings of his death, are not being displayed in the way we treat each other in the house, or the ways we treat each other outside the house. And so Paul had to address this very point in 1 Corinthians, where we're reminded of the institution of the Lord's Supper. In that chapter where, where he is reminding us of the institution of the Lord's Supper, he says this in verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to, to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry, and another gets drunk. But this meal, as Paul rightly instructs them, is to center the unity that is ours together in sharing the benefits of Jesus' death. Indeed, since all the promises of God in Jesus are yes 
and amen, then the way we live together should demonstrate that truth. This was the message of the Passover meal. And if God intended it to be practiced in that meal, he most certainly expects that it will be practiced among us who have received the fulfillment of that meal in the Lord's Supper. If part of the Passover meal was about community and unity and people coming together, not just, not just within Israel, but natives and, and, and strangers and foreigners together celebrating this meal, rich, poor, young, old, celebrating this meal together. If that was the purpose in the Passover meal, how much more so in the meal we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Amen, people of God. So how do we, how do we, how do we purpose unity in the body? It starts right here in the truth embedded in this Passover meal and ultimately in the Lord's Supper. Jesus died for a reconciled body across all the lines of division, male, female, rich, poor, native, foreigner, young, old, ethnic, other, ethnic, other. That person in the church who names the name of Jesus belongs to you, and you belong to them. Amen, people of God. Through Jesus' shed blood on our behalf. And so before we think to mistreat each other, to discard each other, to ignore each other, to joke racially about each other, to call each other out of our names, to assign evil motives to each other, to withhold material good from each other, to abuse each other, to lie about each other, or otherwise diminish each other. Remember that the precious blood of the Savior was shed for each of us. Amen, Amen, people of God. Remember that that person you're tempted to despise, if they have their faith in Jesus, Jesus calls them brother. He calls them sister. He calls them friend. Remember that he loved them enough to die for them. He is theirs and they are his. And if your faith is in Jesus, so are you. How then can we do anything else but build each other up, protect each other, fight for each other's good, provide for each other when we are in need, speak truth to each other and speak truth about each other, pray for each other, hope for each other, and ultimately love each other. If you've been delivered by Jesus then this should and will be more and more uh, what you're giving yourself to. Man, what would happen in the church if this became the ground truly out of which we pursued reconciliation and unity in the body? What if we truly believe that Jesus didn't just die for me? He died for them. He died for us. It's a sacrificial deliverance. It's a communal deliverance. It's a once-for-all deliverance. It's a once-for-all deliverance. In this manner, verse 11, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, 
your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and in all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. At midnight, verse 29, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said to them, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. (laughs) In chapter 10, Pharaoh had dismissed Moses and Aaron from his presence with the added threat that if he ever saw Moses again, he would be put to death. And Moses responded to that threat with, with, with essentially an amen, indicating to Pharaoh that he would indeed never see his face again. Yet he would not see him, not, uh, see him again, not because of the threat, but because of God's plan to deliver his people. And what the text before us indicates is that God's deliverance would be quick and decisive. Indeed, another way to put it is that God's deliverance in reference to Israel's slavery to the Egyptians was to be a once and for all deliverance. Israel was leaving Egypt, and they would never return again as slaves. Though they had been held in years of bondage, their freedom, which had now arrived, would be quick and decisive. It would be once and for all. Thus, they were to eat the Passover meal in a state of preparedness and haste. For when God's call to leave came, they needed to be ready. And it came. For when Pharaoh and his land awoke to the judgment that God had promised would come, the death of all the firstborn throughout Egypt, Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt had been defeated. God had proved that he alone was God in heaven and that he alone was God in earth and that the only means of salvation was from him and him alone. Pharaoh now, who had done everything to keep Israel enslaved, was now requesting that they leave and that they leave now. Up, leave my people, he says, through Pharaoh, through Pharaoh, through Pharaoh, through Pharaoh, though he would change his mind and try later to capture the people of Israel who are leaving his land. It is in this moment that it is the decisive moment, the moment that signifies that this deliverance is going to be once and for all. In this way, the Passover points to the once and for all deliverance that God has secured for all of us who hope in Jesus. I have good news for you this morning. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have left the domain of darkness, and you ain't going back. I, 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 I wish I had some witnesses in the house this morning. You, you have left the domain of darkness, and you are not going back. Your spiritual home address has forever been changed. Yes, God's sanctification process. The process of making us more like his son and our Lord Jesus means helping you get rid of all that old stuff you brought with you to your new home. But your spiritual address in Jesus is forever 
chains. This is a once and for all deliverance that we have received. As the writer of Hebrews declares, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all. He has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save all of those who eagerly wait for him. And I came to tell you this morning, if you're in Christ, you ain't going back. Just like Israel was to be ready to leave with the knowledge that they would never return as Egypt slaves, so we who are in Christ will not be given back over to the dominion of sin and death. Don't let the devil lie to you. Don't let your flesh lie to you. Don't let the world, as it is separated from God, lie to you. You are not going back. So live now in and for the freedom of the kingdom of God into which you have now, through Christ's sacrifice, been brought. You're not going back. Jesus will not give you back to sin and death. And the call here, brothers and sisters, is to believe that. I say this because you, you know, you know that in your experience of following Christ, spiritual warfare is a real thing. Satan, your flesh, the world, where it's set against God, will press in on you from time to time. And in that pressing, you can feel that fear, that fear that those enemies want to create in you. That they, uh, that, that, that they wanted to create in you. You can feel that fear. They want to create the fear to influence you, to respond out of it, to respond out of that fear by living in sin, to, to go back in practice to that old way of slavery. But you will never again be a slave to sin and death. You are in the hands of Jesus. and No one can snatch you out of his hands. Death can't have you. Sin can't have you, nor can the world. So make this verse in Romans 6 the theme of your life. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen, people of God. Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, the Passover, which we now celebrate, the Lord's Supper, that meal is a reminder that we have been brought up from slavery. 
This deliverance has come to us ultimately in the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to whom all those Passover lambs pointed. Through his death, we have been set free. And every time, we did this last week, every time we take the Lord's Supper, that truth is signed and sealed to us. We have been delivered. We have been delivered. That deliverance is a sacrificial deliverance, deliverance in which he took our place and died the death we all deserved. It's a communal deliverance, deliverance in which our unity is proclaimed and sealed through his sacrifice on our behalf. And it is a once and for all deliverance, a deliverance that signifies and seals that we are never going back to the dominion of sin and death because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. I don't know about you, but that's good news. So let's pray. Father, we give you praise. We give you glory, and we give you honor, and we give you thanks that you have set us free, that you have delivered us, Lord, and that you have given us You have given us a sacrament through which we are reminded repeatedly that we have been brought up from slavery. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who died to set us free from sin and death and all that flow from it. We give you praise. We give you praise, Lord Jesus, that you took our place. We give you praise, Lord Jesus, that you have united us together in your body. And we give you praise, Lord Jesus that we have been delivered once and for all. Help us to believe that, embrace that, walk in that, individually and corporately as your people, we pray. And ask this in Jesus' name.